Section 1 of The Strange Visitation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. The Strange Visitation by Marie Corelli, Section 1. A wild night with a gale of wind. A wind that scratched and tore and howled at doors and windows like an angry cat, spitting and spluttering, its meowling voice now rising, now sinking, at one moment savage, at another querulous, but always incessant of complaint, with a threatening undersnarl of restless rage in its tone, a wild night, full of storm and quarrel, with occasional dashes of cold rain sweeping down on the shrieking blast like gusts of angry tears, a noisy night in which the elements were at open war with themselves, making no secret of their hostile intentions. And yet it was the one night of all nights in the year when peace and goodwill were the suggested influences of the time, for it was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve! What a wonderful anniversary it is, if we would but pause in our reckless and senseless rush onward to the grave, just to think quietly about it for a moment. Long, long ago, yet but a short while since, if we count by the world's great epics of civilization, wherein a little two thousand years are but a moment, a host of angels descended from heaven and sang a joyous hymn of general amnesty to mankind on the first Christmas Eve that ever was. And according to the noble poesy of high thinking, God-revering John Milton, no war or battle sound was heard the world around. The idle spear and shield were high uphung. The unhooked chariot stood unstained with hostile blood. The trumpet spake not to the armed throng, and kings sat still with awful eye, as if they surely knew their sovereign lord was by. And peaceful was the night wherein the Prince of Light, his reign of peace upon the earth began. The winds with wonder whist, smoothly the waters kissed, whispering new joys to the mild ocean, who now hath quite forgot to rave, while birds of calm sit brooding on the charmed wave. One wonders if, in those far-off days of angel singing, there was such a thing as a millionaire, not a merely rich man, not a wise man of the East, who, possessing knowledge and insight as well as wealth, hastened to bring his gold with frankincense and myrrh, and lay these reverently in the humble manger which served as cradle to a child, whose vast power was destined to conquer and subdue all the mightiest kings of the earth. But an actual, money-gorged, bank-note-stuffed ruler of some octopus-like trade, whose tentacles clutched and held everything within its reach, some owner of huge factories where human creatures sweated their lives out to fill his pockets, and died in their hundreds, perchance their thousands, in order that he, like some monstrous bloated leech, should swell to the point of bursting on the blood he sucked from their throbbing arteries. Was there such an one existing in the miracle days when the glory to God in the highest rang from star to star, from point to point of the myriad constellations, like a great wave of melody breaking against illimitable and endless shores? Surely not. 
else there would have been some break in the music, some ugly jar in the divine chorus. For instance, if there had at that time been living a multi-millionaire at all resembling the one whose strange experiences are now about to be related, the angels would have fled in dismay, and weeping from the spectacle of a soul so warped from good, so destitute of sympathy, so drained and dry of every drop of the milk of human kindness, and so utterly at variance with the peace and good will of which they sang. Yet no one will deny that a multimillionaire is a great man. What multimillionaire was ever considered otherwise? It was the glorious environment of multimillionarism that made Josiah McNason great, and Josiah McNason was a very great man indeed. Quite apart from his connection with you and me, dear reader, as the immediate subject of this story he was great in business, great in success, great in wealth, great in power, and more than great in his own opinion. Small wonder that he thought much of himself, seeing that thousands of people thought so much of him. Thousands of people had him on their minds, and lay awake at nights uneasily wondering what might be his next financial deal, for on his little finger he balanced mighty combines. At his nod, companies collapsed like card-houses, or rose up again with the aerial brilliancy of castles in Spain. The pulse of trade beat fast or slow as suited his humor. Speculators on change whispered his name in accents of mingled hope and terror. Aye, even kings were known not to be averse to receiving Josiah in private audiences, though they might and did deny the privilege to such others of their subjects whose plea was one of merit more than cash. The fact stood out very patently to both royalty and commons alike, that Josiah McNason was a man to be reckoned with, a man to be studied and considered, a man whose moods must be tolerated and whose irritations must be soothed, a man to be coaxed and coddled, a man to whom the highest personages in the land might safely and even advantageously send presents of grouse and salmon in their seasons, a man whom it was considered politic not to offend. But why? Why all this trouble and anxiety from majesty itself down to toiling bank clerks with respect to the fits and vagaries of one puny biped, neither handsome to look at nor pleasant to speak with, but merely taken as nature made him, an irascible cut-and-dry pygmy of a man, not worth either a curse or a blessing, to judge by his outward appearance. Oh, well, merely because, by speaking him fair and flatteringly, it might be easier to borrow money of him. Every one with even a small surplus quantity of this world's goods knows the taste of that diplomatic bread and honey which is always cautiously administered by one dear friend to some other whose pockets are to be tested. Josiah got such bread and honey all day long. Someone was always feeding or trying to feed him with it. His appetite, however, was fastidious, and he seldom swallowed the cloying bait. Even when he did gulp down a large wedge of it with a distrustful smile, it did not have the effect intended. Instead of softening his financial digestion and rendering him pliable, it appeared to make him harder and tougher in mental fiber. 
The gleam in his cold, expressionless eye bored through the soul of the would-be borrower of cash like a gimlet, and divined his intention before the said borrower could so much as mumble out, "'Could you? Would you? Mr. McNason, make me a trifling advance. Offer good security. A great convenience to me just now.' Trailing the sentence away into indistinguishable fragments, as Josiah snapped his thin pale lips on the no, which, with sharp snarling sound, hopelessly closed the discussion. It was Christmas Eve, and though this fact has already been stated before, it cannot, for the purposes of the present voracious chronicle of events, be too strongly insisted upon. It was the eve of the angels, and no devils were supposed to be anywhere about, for— as Shakespeare tells us, ever against that season comes wherein our Saviour's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long, and then they say no spirit can walk abroad, the nights are wholesome, then no planets strike, no fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm, so hallowed and so gracious is the time. Perhaps the great Macnason, if he had not been so occupied with himself and his own affairs, might have thought of these lines when, on leaving his head office in the city, he travelled with the swiftness of the wind through a storm of sleet and snow to his palatial private abode some twenty miles out of town, rushing along at full speed in a superb motor-car, sumptuously furnished with a rain-proof covering, rugs, foot-warmers, and all the luxurious paraphernalia wherewith a multi-millionaire may shield his valuable joints from the cold. For he professed, did Macnason, to have Shakespearean proclivities, and had been heard to declare publicly that he preferred the Bard of Avon to the Bible. That was the way he put things, with all the agreeable free and easy indifference to religion and to other folks' religious sentiments which so frequently embellishes the character of the multimillionaire. As a matter of fact, he knew nothing about either the immortal plays or holy writ. They were sealed books to his limited comprehension. The divine teachings of Scripture and the broadly beneficent and tender philosophy of Shakespeare were alike beyond him. He understood ledger literature in its every branch. Every smallest point concerning LSD was familiar to him, and such quotations from books as he could make were intimately connected with the stock market. But for all romance he had a fine contempt, and for poetry and poetic sentiment a saturnine derision. More than anything, perhaps, he hated and scorned any idea of things supernatural. He attended church very regularly on Sundays. Oh, yes, that was a particular item of conscience and respectability with him. But as everything he heard there had to do with supernatural matters, it is safe to presume that he was a hypocrite in going to listen to what he did not believe. However... In this he was not exceptional, there are many like him. Respectability may be permitted to play the humbug when it is a millionaire, and drives to its country seat in a motor-car costing two thousand guineas, especially on Christmas Eve, which, despite colossal fortune-makers, remains indissolubly associated in the human mind with poverty and a manger. 
It was with all the glow and splendor of humbugs shining lustrously about him that uh, the world-renowned Macnason stepped out of his sumptuous vehicle as it stopped at his own door and entered his stately baronial hall, where four powdered and liveried flunkies stood waiting deferentially to receive him. Taking scarcely any notice of these gorgeous personages, who were in his sight no more than flower-pots, umbrella-stands, or other portions of ordinary household furniture, he addressed himself to a fifth retainer, severely attired in black, who by a set of cords and tassels on his left shoulder, and the effective simplicity of his costume, as compared with the liveries of the other menials, implied to all whom it might concern that he was the commanding officer or major-domo of the royal Macnason household. "'Anybody called, Towler?' "'Yes, sir. Mr. Pitt.' "'Mr. Pitt? Dear me! I saw him only this morning at the office. What did he want?' "'I couldn't say, sir. He is waiting to see you.' "'Waiting? Here? At this hour?' "'Yes, sir. In the library.' With a frown of irritation, the great Josiah threw off his sable-lined overcoat, which was received obsequiously by one of the powdered lackeys in attendance, while a second accepted his hat with an air of grateful and profound humility. Then he walked slowly, deliberately, not to say in heavy-footed style, along a broad corridor, dimly yet richly lit by electric light filtering through colored glass, where classic marbles were artistically grouped here and there, in snowy contrast with the dark fall of velvet draperies and pyramidal masses of flowers, where Venus gazed from under her sleepless lids, with white eyeballs astare at the ugly little man who passed her without looking up, where Mercury, poising on tiptoe with winged heels, appeared to meditate an immediate flight from the wizened, wrinkled, moneyed creature below him, who was so far and away from any conception of the godlike, and where Psyche, bending over the butterfly in her small caressing hands, seemed almost to shudder, lest the very breath of the celebrated millionaire should shrivel the delicate expanding wings of the immortal soul she so tenderly fostered, preceded by the black-costumed Towler, who threw open various doors majestically as he advanced, Josiah entered the library, warm and cheerful with the red heat and glow of a sparkling log-fire. A well-dressed, gentlemanly-looking man, who had been sitting near the table, turning over a newspaper, rose as he approached and stood a moment without speaking, as though in some doubt or hesitation. "'Well, Pitt, what's the matter? Anything gone wrong since this morning?' "'No, sir, nothing.' "'Oh?' "'Then what are you here for at such an hour, and in such weather, eh?' Mr. Pitt hummed and hawed. He was one of Macnason's most trusted overseers, and at the great factories which daily ground down human lives into the Macnason millions, he had under his management a very large number of the men employed. The only fault that could be found with him, from a strictly business point of view, was that he had some vestiges of a heart. These vestiges were troubling him a little just now. "'There was one thing I forgot to mention to you in my report today,' he began. "'I can't think how it slipped my memory.' "'Neither can I.' 
and Josiah smiled a hard smile. Whatever it is, if you forgot it, it cannot be of much importance. Mr. Pitt did not seem to perceive the implied compliment to himself. Well, perhaps not, he answered slowly. Still, I should blame myself if I neglected it. I should certainly blame myself. Here he broke off and coughed nervously while McNason, drawing a large elbow chair to the fire, sat down and spread out his thin, veiny hands to the blaze in irresponsive silence. It's... It's about Willie Dove, sir, he said. End of section one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.